You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another fantastic episode of Felony Inc. Podcast, broadcasting live from my living room in scenic Portland, Oregon. And it's a kind of slightly overcast day, much better than the 100 degree last Friday weather we had. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little impartial. Um, here at Felony Inc. Podcast, in the society that houses the largest inmate population on Earth, Anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable, and that's what we attempt to accomplish here one show at a time at Felony Inc. As always, joining us today is my beloved co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? All right, Dick. How's it going? Never better. Just, uh, Never better. You're hold, you know, you hold up <laughs> impressively well. I've been calling these times a bit of a crisis glare cake. I am always impressed with your optimism. We were, we have been bemoaning the challenges of COVID and how we're doing this podcast separately and all of the catastrophic news we get around how coronavirus is affecting the inmate population. And now, you know, one week later, we have, uh, some civil unrest that is just profound. It's, um, you know, it has not certainly been some, this, Police brutality against people of color and folks that are mentally ill is not new to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and coincidentally, we have, you know, we have this amazing guest uh, today that has a bit of experience in both realms with his filmmaking, and I'm really excited for this show. You want to in- introduce Brian? Oh, I would love to. And I'm, uh, this is going to be a really great show. I'm really excited about it. Uh, our guest today is Brian Lindstrom, filmmaker, uh, creator of the, the movie Mothering on the Inside. Uh, Mother on the Inside is essentially a documentary that explores the family, uh, preservation project, which is FPP for short, at the Wilsonville Coffee Creek Correctional Facility for Women, which is, you know, essentially the women's prison in Oregon. Um, Brian, I got a chance to watch the movie last night. Uh, it was, it was very compelling. Uh, obviously you kind of hear a little bit, you know, about this and that, but, uh, typically when people think about, um, prisons, um, you know, Stereotypically, it's mostly just male men's prisons. You never really get to get that much of a focus on uh, women's prisons, let alone um, what it's like to be, you know, an actual mother trying to juggle a family while currently being incarcerated. Obviously, uh, Orange is the New Black kind of opened up a few eyes to that, but that was more of a kind of a fictitious type situation. Um, what you created here is the real deal. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me, Dick. And I agree with you. I like the overcast weather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a bit of Stockholm syndrome as Portlanders, don't you think? Like it's it's somewhat relaxing when it's there's so much pressure when there's the sun to like run out, like, Are you going kayaking? What mountain are you gonna climb? <laughs> the sun is out. Hurry. Go find St. Helens. I'm really excited about this show because I have real personal experience with Family Preservation Projects. I've been inside Coffee Creek Prison with Family Preservation Projects multiple times and helped them build out a social justice library and feel really close to that group. As a mother who went to prison, it's dear to my heart. Um, Mm. 
And also fascinating is, Brian, uh, you've also have a film that did quite well called Alien Boy that addresses uh, police brutality against against a mentally ill man here in Portland. So I feel like there's a lot of stuff for us to talk about here. I'm curious. I mean, if you I'm not sure where to even start. But um, I'd love to know, like, let's start there. Since Alien Boy came before Mothering on the Inside, I'm really curious how, you know, if you want to tell us the story of how these topics came into your purview and how you got involved and and how that's been for you. Sure. Um, Well, in 2007, uh, September 17th, uh, which also happens to be my wife's birthday, (laughs) Uh, I mean, she wasn't born in 2007, but she, her birthday is September 17th. Um, a, a very uh, talented and um, troubled uh, man named James Chassie was, I don't know how else to put it, uh, beaten to death by the Portland police. And uh, my dear friend Jason Renault from the uh, Mental Health Association of Portland, Jason's a longtime mental health advocate, um, actually knew James growing up and suggested to me that, uh, that we, you know, kind of look into this, this terrible death and, and make a film. And so we started working on it and, you know, it took years and years to make, but what we really wanted to do was just, uh, go in with an open mind, um, and find out what happened to James that day when he interacted with officers Humphreys and, um, I'm trying to remember the other officers involved. My mind's a little bit foggy this morning. Um, and really just tell the story uh, in a kind of open-minded way. We didn't go into this film with any uh, preconceived notions about anything. We talked to anyone who would be willing to talk to us. Uh, and the more I, I found out, it was just like, you know, a terrible um, miscarriage of justice where the officers were very confrontational. Uh, you know, James was a, a man who um, dealt with mental illness most of his adult life and was uh, terrified of the police from a, from his early teens on. Um, and so uh, the bystanders who saw the interaction uh, that the police had with James all described it as like, you know, here was a terrified person. Why, weren't, why aren't they doing anything to kind of de-escalate? You know, he, he's clearly mentally ill he's not a threat why are they you know chasing him why are they you know beating him why aren't they helping him um but basically just to kind of give a quick overview um james was walking through uh the the pearl district and came to the notice of officer chris humphreys because james um like many people uh, that are on uh you know psych anti-psychotic meds uh had a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a strange movement to him. He would rock back and forth sometimes. Um, and Humphreys basically shouted, Hey, you, uh, to Jim. And Jim turned around, saw Officer Humphreys and, um, and the other officers and ran. And it seemed that basically what happened was the Jim running, uh, I don't want to be, melodramatic but that was that was his death sentence uh, because the police chased him they tackled him uh, they broke his ribs in 28 different places when they did so um and instead of you know immediately getting him into an ambulance and to a hospital 
they refused the EMT's uh, care of Jim, and they put him in a squad car after they had basically hogtied him with handcuffs and carried him like a shot deer, as one of the eyewitnesses described, into the squad car, and even then didn't take him to a hospital, took him to the jail, uh, where finally the admitting nurse at the jail said, this guy is in no physical condition for me to take care of him. You know, he has to be taken to a facility, a, a hospital. Then they carried him again, you know, hogtied to the squad car back into the Sally port where they were parked. And then instead of taking him to any of the nearby hospitals, they took him literally to the furthest hospital away, which is Portland Adventist. And he basically died en route. And, you know, uh, I, I wish I could say that, um, that after the Department of Justice was called in, because uh, none of the officers were charged, um, uh, the Department of Justice found that um, the Portland police had a, uh, a record of disregarding the constitutional rights of people with mental illness in terms of their interactions with the police. Um, and, you know, I was hoping that that when the Department of Justice came in, that things would change radically and kind of the problem would be solved. And I can't say that that's been the case. Clearly has not been the case. It's absolutely, it's amazing how, you know, something that's so prevalent can continue to be befuddling. And I think particularly for white people, for us, you know, befuddling because we haven't lived our whole lives believing that the cops are as much of a threat as other communities see them. Mm -hmm. And that response to run from something that you know is a threat to your life becomes a threat to your life. And it seems to be a really natural response. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to see how much it's taking to wake up particularly the, the white population around what this means for a great, a great many of our citizens and how that relates to mass incarceration, how that relates yep. to a lot of problems. What is, um, you know, then what was the path from that to working with family preservation project? Well, you know, it, my films in general, I, I always, uh, I think my main kind of guiding principle is uh, trying to, humanize people that society puts an X through. And with, you know, Alien Boy, it was uh, Jim Chassie, you know, someone who suffered with mental illness. Um, and then I read a great article by uh, the wonderful journalist uh, Lisa Loving in uh, The Scanner uh, about um, uh, uh, the Family Preservation Projects and how they helped uh, families, you know, kind of heal. And one of their main tools was simply getting the kids into the prison to visit with their moms. And I just thought, wow, you know, if the, the, the words inmate mom, I can't think of a more stigmatized, you know, label that you could stick on someone. Um, and I just thought, wow, I would love to tell the story. And so I reached out to Jessica Katz, um, the brilliant executive director and founder of FPP, and she uh, was completely into it. And luckily, uh, at that time, the Department of Corrections uh, gave me wonderful access. And so I was That was able- impressive. <laughs> yes. What I was, was so the process? I mean, was that easy for you to get into the prison with a camera? 
you know, it's, it's an ordeal. And, um, cause you have to have, uh, you know, clearance, first of all, uh, you have to arrange it all ahead of time, of course. And then you have to like literally write down every, uh, serial number on every piece of equipment so it can go through the scanner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that and, and my kind of, uh, predilection for just really wanting to kind of be as unobtrusive as possible, uh, made me decide that I would just shoot the thing all, all, you know, alone so that I didn't have to have even just one more person have to kind of go through that cumbersome process and slow things down. Um, but what really struck me, um, being in there was, and I, I felt this also making my film finding normal about the recovery mentor program, uh, and that was just the incredible accountability that the women held each other and themselves and each other too. I mean, it was an incredible support group that really kind of lifted up the best parts of themselves and helped everyone address, you know, the challenges that got them into Coffee Creek in the first place. And one thing I really loved about the Family Preservation Project is this great exercise they do called a geni- geniogram. And, you know, we're, we're all, you know, I think the, the results of the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And what the geniogram does is it helps the woman really break down in concrete terms the story they've told themselves their whole lives about themselves. And by really digging deep and looking at, like, the family history, things like mental illness, poverty, addiction, uh, sexual abuse, violence, you know, all these things, they're really able to identify these huge, you know, intergenerational traumas that, of course, not only affected them, but their families, you know, for generations back. And the result of this uh, geneogram that they do, which they do uh, in this wonderful uh, kind of visual representation, so it literally becomes kind of like a map of their life, um, is that it, it helps the women realize I'm not a bad person. I'm a person who came into a family that had these challenges, you know, poverty, addiction, you know, incarceration, all these things. And I, I responded to those challenges in a certain way that led me here. And there's something about kind of taking away the, the value judgments of, oh, I'm a bad person, but really more like I'm a person who has faced these obstacles. Um, really just kind of buoyed the spirits of the women and and really, you know, kind of clean the slate in a way. And you see this kind of wonderful rebirth, if you will. And, you know, now, you know, what, five years after I've made the film, you know, I'm still in touch with the women who have now been released and are just thriving on the outside. Not only have they rebuilt their lives, but they're like really powerful advocates for the Family Preservation Project as it struggles to survive in these like really difficult budgetary times. I can really attest to that process. That's in fact, like right, you know, exactly the arena I was working with them when I was in the prison as well. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my area is is that shifting of story. And it's incredibly powerful because we live in a culture of individualism that says, you are responsible for yourself. It's like the bootstrapping lie, right? If you work yep. hard enough, you can be president like Barack Obama, right? We have these sort of, right. these sort of outliers that stand in and say, if you can, if you didn't do this like this person, it's on you. And in exactly. the prison system, it's really, really a common narrative that is handed to every inmate who walks in the door that mm-hmm. 
Well, you should have thought of that before you committed a crime. And it's a completely shallow and one-dimensional narrative that puts these women in a place of deep shame, which they walked in with because of everything you just said, all of the abuse, all of the generational trauma, all of the things, and that just gets handed on. It's really powerful to be able to go home to your children and instead of saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I screwed up, I did all this, but to be able to explain to your children a more holistic narrative of what kind of a society they're living in and how to survive it, right? And these women are being given those tools. It's incredible to me how, um, you know, I just want to say thank you, first of all, because, you know, your film Mothering on the Inside, which I was really grateful actually to be in the front row at the screening at when it came out. And that was very, very meaningful to me and my son who was there, who I had to leave behind for prison. The, the way that you humanized these women, um, it's one of the most powerful depictions I've ever seen. So first of all, thank you so much. Oh, for thank that. you, Meg. That, I, that I appreciate really that. means a lot, Brian. And then, you know, you did a follow up, um, you did a follow-up film for them as well called Like a Shield. Uh, mm-hmm. Will you talk a little bit about the Children's Bill of Rights that actually ended up going through legislature? Thanks, I'm sure, in part to the beautiful film you made. Oh, uh, thank, first of all, thank you for your kind words. You, you inspire me and humble me. Um, yeah, I had the privilege of making a, a little film called Like a Shield in which uh, the the... the the families that basically I had followed in mothering inside, uh, that were now, you know, out of prison and thriving, uh, we basically just gave the, the kids a chance and the moms to talk about, you know, what was it like their experience of, of <clears throat> either being arrested or seeing their mom being arrested, you know, what happened that day of the arrest, where did the kids go? What were they told? Just all the kind of, you know, just kind of hard facts of what does it mean when, you know, the police who I just want to remind us and remind myself that, um, you know, the police and the department of corrections, they do all of these things in our name. And I think it's really, you know, profound and important for us to remember that and to look at them as, uh, you know, reflections of, of our voices. Uh, and, you know, so the, like a shield just kind of examines what happens when the police come into a family home, and, you know, arrest the mom and take her away in handcuffs. And, you know, are, are the kids cared for even? Are they just left in the home? You know, what happens? I mean, it was really just a, a you know, a effort to give the moms and their kids a, a voice and then to articulate uh, the Bill of Rights, you know, for the children of incarcerated parents that we wanted the legislature to adapt. And, you know, luckily they did. What were some of those rights? Um, boy, I wish I had that memorized. I can't say I that know. I do. I, wish I, I know that, um, one of them was, I, 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 have, have I have the My right boy to, is one of the voices. I know. He's so articulate. Has he graduated now? He just graduated. He turns 18 tomorrow, Brian. Oh my God. Congratulations. He was, he was one and a half when I went to prison yeah. and three and a half when I got out. I was able to see him twice in two years Mm. and it was devastating and that's you know for me why i was very attracted to family preservation project too i mean they we will have jessica katz and in fact some of the graduates she told me i'm so excited we're very excited i'm so you know you know how i feel about this 
about yep. this group, any group that facilitates regular, weekly, long contact visits with children, extra phone calls, legal help to maintain custody of children. It is powerful because we've got, what is the statistic now? Two million people, including men, I mean, their parents too, that are incarcerated in this country. You can just take that number exponentially to how it's impacting these families and traumatizing generations of a massive portion of our population. It's, so this little, you know, this little program is doing big, oh, big it does work. Such great work. I, I'll never forget, you know, I, I was so lucky to be able to every other Saturday film there for three hours, you know, the visits between the kids and their mom. And, um, you know, I'm a parent myself. And just to, to think like, what what is it like to have to kind of, you know, focus all the love and uh, everything you want to kind of give your kids uh, into a three hour meeting, you know, every other week. <laughs> and it's just, it's, you know, it, it was a profound thing to witness. Um, and I just think it's so powerful what FPP does because that relationship between mother and child, you know, it, there's nothing more important and it, it gives the women motivation to take advantage of any kind of rehabilitation that's offered. Uh, and it also, of course, just makes a world of difference to the children who get to have, you know, their beloved moms in their life in a meaningful way. And then thanks to FPP, they also get to have like, you know, nightly phone calls or, you know, mom, can you help me with my homework over the phone? And the moms get to do that. And it's right. It's just and free of, phone calls, which is important exactly. to state oh, because so glad you mentioned that, phone you know, calls are so incredibly expensive. It's actually, cost prohibitive for many families to be able to use the prison phone system and family preservation project yes. allows free phone calls. There is a whole industry, you know, that is built on the back of, you know, incarcerated people wanting to connect with their family on the outside. And it's, you know, I think it's a travesty that, that there's a, you know, monetization of that pain. It, it is a travesty. Did you, so I interrupted you before you, you had at least remembered one of those rights. I'm, what was oh, it? Oh, uh, I think it was, I have the right to have like a physical relationship with my parent. Right. And, uh, you know, that's just such a profound statement to think that we even have to state that is, is kind of mind blowing. It really is. I'll let Dick ask some questions. I could just keep going. going. I know Dick, you have, Dick always has really good questions. Uh, thank you, Meg. Um, so one of the things that kind of struck me, let me just start off by saying uh, the, the movie Mothering on the Inside is available uh, for free. Anyone can watch it. It's on YouTube. Uh, just search Brian Lindstrom Mothering on the Inside on YouTube. You can watch it. And I recommend everyone check it out. Um, but one of the things that really kind of resonated with me was there was a quote kind of at, uh, towards the beginning of the movie where a lady in the movie says, uh, when they send a mother to prison, they send the entire family. Yeah, so uh, true. Um, it, to me, that was, that was really profound because, you know, you don't think of it like that when they send the father to prison. Like it, it's yep. so much more substantial when it's the mother um, and it's so yep. much more. Uh, it just has such a ripple effect on these children's lives. Um, oh, it's so true. And it also, you know, that then the extended family who, you know, oftentimes is already hard hit by, you know, poverty or uh, other members of the family being incarcerated or, or addiction or what have you. 
the other members of the family have to then scramble to somehow kind of absorb that child or children that have been, you know, abandoned because the mom's in prison. And just that alone is a huge hardship for the family to, you know, kind of feed and house and clothe the children. And I, you know, it's just, it seems like there must be a better way, (laughs) you know, like why are we separating moms and their kids? Why not put resources into those families? Why not address those underlying issues that cause the incarceration? And even like back up a step further, back to where we started this conversation, why are social workers and counselors not the first people on the scene rather than law enforcement officers? There's something going on here, a counselor, someone who can Mm de-escalate a situation and provide care first on the scene. And then if we're actually dealing with a legal issue, you know, what that law enforcement even needs to look like, which might be entirely different than what it looks like now. You know, uh, that reminds me that um, I just read, I think, yesterday that uh, <clears throat> the Portland Public Schools have decided not to have, I think they're called resource officers anymore in, in the schools, which are basically police officers. And uh, <clears throat> it's part of an effort to, you know, examine some of these areas where maybe the police aren't the best people to deal with a situation. Like, for instance, someone in a mental health crisis. You know, maybe it's better to have a mental health professional there rather than a police officer. Um, I, I find, you know, I'm heartened by these movements that are um, really trying to examine these big, you know, institutions like the police department or department of corrections and thinking, you know, what, what is the best way here? What, what, you know, how can we have more kind of meaningful healing rather than just creating more trauma? And, it's funny you say that because uh, we're gonna, we have to go to a commercial break soon, but uh, just real quick, I remember when I was in high school, I was arrested for selling weed mm-hmm. uh, at Taggart High School back in 1995. Um, and they took me uh, to the office, and the police officer at the time had a little office in the office by the principal. And uh, immediately I was arrested, and um, it kind of just, it, almost like Plinko, it just put me in a particular spot. At that moment, I was kind of just separated from everyone else everyone just going to school minding their business uh just having living a, a normal teenage existence and then all of a sudden it's you're in a whole different spectrum immediately uh with the with the armed police officer right there um so i was, I was actually really happy to hear about the important public schooling uh cutting funding to armed police officers in school Is yeah that- i think it's a great great beginning yeah, I think it's a long time coming. Um, and on that note, let's do a quick commercial break. We've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. 
And we're back with Felony Inc. podcast. Me, Meg Thibodeau, and DJ Dick Hennessy are here with Brian Lindstrom, Portland filmmaker of films Alien, uh, Alien Boy, Mothering on the Inside, Like a Shield, and many others. Um, Brian, we're great, to, uh, great. We're very grateful to have you. And I'm grateful uh, to be here. Where were we? Let's keep talking. We've got some really uh, very topical stuff happening in this call right now, and um, let's keep going. Well, if I could, Dick, you mentioned uh, right before the break that uh, you were arrested at in high school at the school for selling weed. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't try to another interview with me, but yeah, no problem. Um, it's funny because at the time I kind of, I, I transferred to a new high school at Tiger High. I originated in Beaverton, so I didn't really know people. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was trying to fit in and uh, where I fit in at the time um, was just, I, I started smoking weed. So I migrated towards people that were smoking weed. And, um, I, you know, I started realizing I could sell weed and uh, it was just another day I was in the, the bathroom selling with like probably like a five or 10 sack to a person I knew. And uh, it just so happened, it, it was a bad coincidence at the time, uh, Romilio, the wrestling coach who like ran six miles to school to work and back every day was using the bathroom in the stall at the time, unbeknownst to me. So as the transaction was getting made, the hand-to-hand marijuana transaction, he burst out the stall and grabbed us and, and escorted us to the, the officer's office and uh, where I was subsequently arrested and then put into a position where I would either be expelled or I could uh, go into rehab for marijuana addiction and then be let back into school. And what'd you do? I went, <laughs> I went to rehab <laughs> for a week and I actually quit smoking for almost a year. I'd say a year and a couple months after that. It scared me straight. Because I had UAs. It's so beyond tragic. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, as we know, marijuana is now an essential business during our quarantine (laughs) of coronavirus because we now call it medicine. So we just, you know, as a society, uh, first of all, I'm blown away that there's a police officer office inside of your school and (laughs) that we arrest children and actually like traumatize them, isolate them stigmatize them before they even have fully formed frontal lobes. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Yeah, at the, at the time I was just like, okay, well, this is how it is. It just kind of, I already felt isolated being in a new school and not really knowing people. And then it kind of put me even further um, right. into isolation in terms of like, now I'm a criminal and a bad person because of this. And, uh, you know, even in, when you go to rehab at that age, I think it was 15, um, just you feel like different than everyone else just concerned about schoolwork and sports and stuff like that. You're all, you're all did, of a sudden thrust into a real, a real world, real life. Situation. Did that lead you into more crime? Yeah, indeed it did. Um, <laughs> new friends that were criminals that all felt stigmatized. So you stick together. It's your new family. Yeah. All of a sudden it was like, Oh yeah. Ooh, I got arrested at school and I almost got expelled for this and it was drugs and, yeah, it definitely led me on a on a different path than I was I was already previously on. But um, you know the the, the weird thing about this is this was Tigard High School in 1995. This wasn't like Jefferson. This wasn't an inner city high school. This was a nice, uh, really really calm suburban environment. And at that time, they still had a legitimate police officer in the school full time. Wow. So that was probably like, and and that was probably one of the biggest things that happened to him. 
that month, I would imagine. So it's, it's wow. just a tremendous waste of resources, in my opinion. And I'm glad that yeah. even though it took uh, 20, 25 years since then for this to finally get abolished and, you know, kind of restructured, uh, I guess it's better late than never. So, Dick, I'm curious, like, if you could wave a magic wand, uh, what, in retrospect, do you wish would have happened uh, when that wrestling coach caught you that day? Like, what would have been a, you know, a, a different response that might have helped you more? Well, um, it, it stuff is unconflicted because I, I really do feel like things happen for a reason to put you mm-hmm. on a particular path that you're on in life. But, um, I wish, I wish he just would have stabbed me down and talked to me or maybe took yeah. me to the counselor. Uh, I think that, you know, if I could have just done rehab or something like that without the stigma, um, I think that would have had a significant impact. Um, maybe not. It, maybe they just would have addressed how you were feeling like an outsider and were attracted to this situation in the first place, right? Like, wow, here's this new kid who might be struggling in ways we don't understand. Perhaps yeah, we address would, those things. Well, what's crazy is back then people weren't really smoking weed like that just yet. And it, was, it wasn't really that popular in that age group. Um, now it's completely normal. I would imagine almost every 15 or 16 year old kid in high school right now has smoked weed at some point. Uh, back then I was kind of like the, the stoner, the dangerous kid, the shady kid, you know. And you, well, I'll tell you, as rumors. a parent of a teenager, they think it's kind of boring. It's basically grandma's medicine at this point. Yeah, yeah, all the, all the fun <laughs> the, the Cheech and Sean movies were a long time ago. Right, we were way more impressed with weed than the kids are today. <laughs> Absolutely, but um, yeah, just uh, in retrospect, who knows? But I think that I was kind of going above and uh, just more than it needed to be done at the time. Uh, it was excessive and. Who knows what would happen if it went the other way around? But I guarantee, if uh, if I was on the wrestling team or something like that, and I, you know, he had spoke to me like a man, and we had had some kind of connection, and I would made a change personally because of that versus getting arrested, it could have been a whole different ballgame. Yeah. <clears throat> but but then, you know, I wouldn't have been the host of a felony podcast. So. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I like, to think that, I like to think everything we go through, certainly, like you said earlier, like it's for a reason, and, you know, I, I say that about my own story, like no regrets. Of course, but you know, there's always there's always that piece where things could have gone differently. Right. What are you working on now, Brian? Uh, I kind of uh, switched gears a, a little bit, and I'm in the kind of final stages of making a film with my friend Andy Brown about uh, the late singer songwriter Judy Sill, and she died in uh, 1979, and so it's been a process of kind of uncovering um, like her old friends and finding them and uh, interviewing them about her. And we tracked down like her old journals and, you know, all these kind of artifacts of her life and through her music and audio interviews are kind of hopefully, you know, bringing her back to life in a way so that people can kind of uh, experience her incredible music. She has a song called the kiss uh, that you can find on YouTube and her last name is S I L L L Judy Sill. Um, and it's just, it's like once you hear that song, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a very beautiful, beautiful song. And, um, so hopefully the film will 
kind of guide more people to her music. She was a uh, she was the first artist that David Geffen signed to Asylum Records. You guys are probably too young, but Asylum was the label that had the Eagles and Jackson Brown and all those folks on it. Um, and she had this fascinating backstory where she was a convicted armed robber as a teenager, and so she went to reform school and learned to play uh, gospel piano at, at reform school and came out and, you know, became um, a heroin addict uh, and went to jail again, um, but finally got clean and decided she wanted to devote herself to being a, a musician, a singer-songwriter, and she was on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1971 and, you know, seemed to be kind of poised to be in some ways the next Joni Mitchell, but never quite kind of made it uh, commercially. And then she got in a terrible series of uh she got in a car accident and had these uh, back operations that never kind of worked. And she was in terrible pain. And because she was a, a convicted felon, she was denied kind of proper pain medication. And so she started to self-medicate and tragically died in 1979 of an unintentional drug overdose. Um, so you but sort of switched directions, but it sounds like you're still doing some similar things thematically with, with your storytelling. Yeah, it, it feels uh, it feels familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that I'm also piece um, about humanizing the ex folks. Like, where are the folks that have fallen through the cracks, and how can we tell a human story about them? Right. And then I'm also uh, in the kind of midst of a, a documentary I've been working on for about four years now about um, you know McLaren, the prison for young men in Woodburn. Juvenile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Did you go there, Dick? No, no, no. I'm, okay. I'm shocked, actually, I didn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> you could have that day if you had yeah. not gone to rehab. If I hadn't um, played ball. They have the only uh, marathon of its kind in the country for incarcerated youth. Um, and so every April, the young men at McLaren uh, who participate run, uh, I think it's like 17 and a half laps of this kind of circuitous route that they've created you know, within the, the correctional facility grounds that, you know, add up to 26.2 miles. Um, and I've been following that process, and there's uh, a, a couple young men who have become kind of the main characters, and uh, I've been uh, lucky to, to be telling that story. What brought you to documentary filmmaking? What, like, versus any other kind of filmmaking or being a writer, any ways that you could tell stories, what was... What was the documentary filmmaking? Well, you know, for you? my first love actually uh, was was narrative filmmaking. You know, the time where you can you know have a script and actors and a crew and the whole thing. And I uh, went to film school mainly focusing on narrative filmmaking. And while I was in film school, um, I was working on my thesis film, and uh, I read an article in the Village Voice uh, about a basketball, former basketball player named Earl the Goat Manigault. And he, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar called Earl inch for inch the best player I ever played against uh, on the uh, schoolyards of Harlem. Um, anyway, Earl uh, became a heroin addict and uh, didn't make it to the NBA, but he got clean and he started his own summer basketball league called the Earl Manigault uh, Walk Away from Drugs Basketball Tournament. They're on 90... I think it was second in Amsterdam. Um, anyway, so I, I read about that and I thought, wow, Earl sounds like an interesting 
guy and I called him up, uh, tracked him down and kind of won his trust and I made a little short documentary about him. Uh, and, uh, he actually lived with me, uh, because he had no place else to stay. Wow. And, uh, I mean, it sounds like a bad, like after school movie or something. <laughs> what happens <laughs> when you're old man? Um, but he became a dear friend and, uh, the little film we made, uh, helped him uh, attract some support for his basketball tournament. Um, at any rate, so that kind of helped me understand, wow, that, you know, documentary films can, can have uh, some kind of direct impact. And so, uh, you know, ever since then, I've, I've always in the back of my mind thought, okay, I'll, I'll make another narrative film here soon. But frankly, I can never either write my own script or find a script that means as much to me or seems as real to me as the, you know, stories I find to make documentaries about. So I guess that's my long answer. <laughs> but I feel like the, the camera is really like a, a bridge, you know, it, it, it allows me and an audience to enter another world and, and, and another life. And, and there's something very sacred about that journey. I think both for the audience and hopefully also for the person or people that the film is about this kind of, you know, sharing of something, you know, deep within us all. And, you know, hopefully uh, something comes across where it's like, okay, we're, we're really not all that different. We really kind of have the same goals. I, you know, I really don't believe in this idea of, you know, bad people. It's really usually people that have either a profound misperception about themselves and or the world. And if there's some kind of, guiding thing that can adjust that perception that usually they will go on a much more positive path. Well, it seems Absolutely. to be working. It's <laughs> <laughs> a huge amount of gray area. I mean, essentially. Um, so basically one thing I wanted to run by you real quick was uh, when you're doing documentary films. It's obviously it's very important to have base knowledge on cinematography and uh, sound, lighting, stuff like that. But a big part of documentary films, in my opinion, is being able to kind of do uh, detective work. You know, like for instance, in Alien Boy, you were able to find the, the footage of Kurt Cobain um, just praising James Chassis' uh, band and stuff like that. Um, I feel like that's kind of one of those. Uh, it's something that's not really glamorized, but it's a huge part of the glue that puts a documentary film together. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think what happens in making an, any kind of documentary, it's really, you know, becoming part of, uh, maybe part of is not the quite right word, but you're, you're educating yourself about a community. And I think to do that, you, you really have to humble yourself and, and not, go in with, you know, assumptions or, you know, value judgments, but really just try to avail yourself to as many people and, and viewpoints as possible. And if you do that, you start to kind of, um, I think, create a momentum where the, the documentary gods smile upon you and things start to kind of appear that you could never have, you know, controlled or, or written otherwise. Like, for instance, with Alien Boy, um, I had we had been trying to get in contact with uh, the family's lawyer who was bringing the civil suit against the city, uh, Tom Steenson. And, you know, because the, the case was still being tried, you know, Tom couldn't really be in touch with us. Uh, 
And so we thought, okay, I guess that's just the way it is. Well, as soon as the family settled the civil suit, like I immediately got a call from Tom and he basically said, look, I'm sorry I've been blowing you off for the last, like literally, you know, three and a half years. Uh, but I have a box for you. And I was like, oh, okay. And so we get together and Tom hands me this box. And in the box are all the taped depositions of the officers uh, talking about their encounter with James Chassie. And so, you know, deep into the making of that film, suddenly we basically had, you know, the, the story from the antagonist's point of view. And it was transformative. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of using that as an example of, you know, each documentary has its own lifespan, its own personality, and you just have to kind of hold on and, and let it guide you. And, you know, usually there is some kind of unexpected thing that happens where it's like it takes your story to the next level. It's interesting about art that way, isn't it? When you open a door, you, <laughs> you never know, know quite what to go. expect, right? <laughs> right? It takes on a life of its own. And then you make the thing and it's yours. You made it. And somehow, you know, you once you release it, it becomes something that belongs to someone else that sort of they're able to consume and digest and allow to articulate something inside their own selves, right? That was perhaps oh. previously unrevealed. Yeah, that's the beauty of it because it, 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 it's like the, I mean, I'm, I don't want to um, deny that there's, you know, it takes a lot of ego to make anything, right? But what's beautiful sure. about like a documentary or something is that um, it, it becomes part of other people's story and they have their own reactions to it. And in a wonderful way, you're out of the equation. You know, it's like you've just kind of created a situation where someone can see something and experience it and then they get to have their own thing, you know. And um, I'll never forget, like I had a, a screening of Alien Boy at the um, public library in Milwaukee. They had this great series where they would bring in local uh, documentarians and show their films. And after it, a, a woman uh, walked up and handed me a piece of paper um and she didn't want me to read it like there, but you know, read this when you get home. And I opened it up and it said, my son is alien boy. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, wow, you know, that these stories, uh, you know, that we're, that are swirling all around us, you know, that they connect us and they, they help us see ourselves in the world in a, in an elevated way that can, you know, help us in these kinds of times. Right. You know, suddenly it's like, oh, we, we are George Floyd. There, there's no separation. Right. And yet it, we're white people. I, I mean, I know from my own experience telling stories and writing stories and talking about prison and, you know, Piper Kerman, who wrote uh, Orange is the New Black. Right. There's a way that white voices get through, yeah. you know. But when I tell someone I have been in prison and I talk about my incarceration story, the primary response I get is, oh, my gosh, you're a survivor. You're so brave. That must have been so hard. You know, I get sort of this immediate compassion when folks say this woman who looks like me had this experience. I can understand it. Yeah. Whereas someone with uh, different colored skin gets a very different response because of how we perceive who sort of deserves to be in prison. And we've got so many cultural narratives around messed up ideas of who's actually committing crimes, right? When in fact it's who is actually being stalked by the police versus people yeah. who are not. 
Um, so I feel that personally, do you feel that responsibility? I mean, especially now is that play into your storytelling as a person of at least white privilege that is able to go out and use a voice that others don't have? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's such a profound challenge and, uh, like my, my wife, Cheryl Strayed, uh, next week is doing this, uh, thing where she's handing over her social media, uh, to a, um, to a black activist so that, you know, that platform is, is not, you know, coming from Cheryl's mouth, but from, mm-hmm. you know, a person more directly impacted by it. And, you know, I just see things like that and think that's, that's what needs to happen. You know, they need, we just need to listen. Right. That's that's an incredible way for her to use her platform. That's really awesome. Yeah. Cheryl Strait, yeah, author of Wild, for those of you who don't know, Cheryl has done really well as well as a storyteller. Um, what, you know, how would you, as we kind of get to the end, a couple of things I want to make sure and get to is first to, uh, if you'll tell us, I know that Alien Boy is available right now. Um for watching. I want to make sure everybody knows where to find these films and, um, you know, kind of talk a little bit about just if you sum up your, your filmmaking, you know, your storytelling philosophy for us, what you oh, want sure. to impart to people. Well, Alien Boy is available on Canopy. That's with a K, K-A-N-O-P-Y. And that is like a, uh, a streaming service that's available at the Multnomah County Library and other places online. Um, and on June 10th, there is a free uh, online screening of Alien Boy followed by a discussion with the um, Multnomah County District Attorney-elect Mike Schmidt and uh, Reverend Haynes from the Albus, uh, Albina Ministerial Alliance and Jason Renault and myself and uh, other people. So uh, please uh, look into that because uh, we want to have a wide-ranging discussion and we need all the voices possible. Um, is there a sign up for that? What does that look like? Yeah, it's through Eventbrite, and I'm I'm sorry I don't have all the all the uh, info in front of me. But if you just go to Alien Boy, like on Facebook or AlienBoy.org, dot uh, you mm-hmm. can find out the information. Okay. I I also want to sign in because I was just watching Alien Boy this morning before the show. Uh, it's also available on Amazon Prime right now uh, for anyone that has that. Um, one th- one thing is that that was kind of. Uh, ironic about that is one of the, I remember you trying to struggle with thinking of the officer's names. One of the officer's names was officer nice that essentially was complicit in the beating death of James Jesse. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, and a good friend of mine, actually, uh, her sister, uh, developed schizophrenia. Uh, well, mm-hmm. and I got to kind of see the, the reality of that. You know, if you never experienced anything like that or understand, uh, mental illness, um, it's really it's really eye opening, and on top of that, last year, I mean, last month May was Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, Alien Boy was actually produced by the Mental Health Association of Portland. How did you make that uh, connection with that with them? Well, Jason Renault, uh, uh, community activist extraordinaire, uh, was uh, founded Mental Health Association of Portland, and he you know, knew James Chassie and uh, Jason and I uh, made the film together. And uh, it was, you know, a labor of love for many years, but, you know, we really wanted to 
bring Jim's story to a wider audience so that they could understand um, why it's so important that, you know, human life be valued and people with mental illness be treated with respect and how we need to have a police force that is, you know, reflective of our desires to, to help, you know, those struggling among us rather than punish them. Absolutely. And if I, if I remember correctly, the reason why I brought the office a nice comment was I think one of the main things that was taken from this is that Portland police officers were forced to undergo like an hour or two hour class uh, about mental health awareness. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that was part of the, I think the, the settlement. I also think that uh, it was just made clear that um, officers cannot transport injured people to the hospital that EMTs have to, um, you know, but these were all things that, you know, common sense would have yeah. told, told you anyway. And uh, by the way, the, the other officer involved was officer uh, Brett Burton uh, besides uh, Kyle Nice and Chris Humphreys. Did those officers even get fired? Were there any? Uh, not for that. No, no, they did not. I think they were uh, initially put on some kind of, you know, leave, uh, but that, you know, was with full pay and then they were all reinstated. And by the way, at, at the, at the scene of the, the beating where, while Jim was being, um, you know, handcuffed and they were waiting for EMTs to arrive, even though they then would, tell the EMTs, no, we'll take care of them. Uh, one officer held up a, uh, a plastic baggie that was full of breadcrumbs from Jim's backpack and announced to the crowd that it was crack cocaine, which, of course, that is so not. twisted. Uh, well, you know, it was a, an attempt to uh, dehumanize Jim and to paint him as a villain and somehow perhaps plant in the minds of the onlookers that he deserved this kind of treatment. And I just oh, want to say, oddly that, that works sometimes. Pardon me. Oddly that works. Yeah. sometimes. There yeah. are folks that say like, a, you know, I said earlier, well, you should have thought of that before you, whatever crime it is, right. Tried right. to forge a $20 bill. George Floyd, exactly. you should have thought of that before you tried to pass off a fake $20 bill. And it well, misses so much of you know exactly. like the tiny tip and then there's this iceberg of story underneath right and that's no, quite no amount insidious of, exactly I, I, I know that um there are some people now saying that well george floyd had methamphetamine in his system or, or something um and it's like w w what is the relevance does that equal a, a knee right. on the neck for 10 minutes i don't right. think so. violent death no i don't think yeah, that equals like maybe a counseling for drug treatment maybe some help Right. We are um, getting very close to being out of time. Uh, this interview is amazing. I can completely keep talking to you. Perhaps we can have you back. Just to sum up, um, you know, any other things you would like listeners to know? I'd love to kind of hear a, you know, brief sort of roundup of your philosophy, what you're kind of hoping to, to bring to the table uh, in your continued work as a filmmaker. Well, I guess I'd, I'd rather just talk about like where we are right now with what's going on. And, yeah. and I think what we see is all the, the inequities and inequalities, uh, you know, in our society. And this is a time of, of reevaluation and it's a time of frankly, things falling apart in a terrible and, you know, dramatic way. Uh, but out of that, you know, something can be rebuilt. And 
you know, I, one thing that has given me, you know, so much uh, heart in this time is just the overwhelming response of, you know, people rising up and saying, you know, this is not acceptable, not in my name, you know, we cannot, you know, have this happen. And so I think we're on the precipice of something. And I think that, you know, we, we have to stick together and hold the line and, you know, not give in to the kind of lower forces that are always out there trying to drum up fear and separation, but to unite and, you know, lift up the least among us because we can do so much better. And I believe we will. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Hope it's so important in these times. Yes. Indeed. Um, Thanks again, Brian, for being a guest. Love to have you back. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Meg. I love what you guys do. Keep up the great work. Thanks. We'll try. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Mutual gratitude. Thank you so much. Indeed. So, uh, just closing out here. Remember, you can catch us every Friday at 10 a.m. at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And we'll see you next Friday. And this is for me, Meg, signing out. Stay safe. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.